Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Bezos backing, the Amazon CEO says business should pay more tax to finance infrastructure. Vaccine verdict, EU regulators set to release their full AstraZeneca Oxford review and smartphone success. Samsung profits jump despite chip supply problems. It's Wednesday. Let's make a move. Once again, welcome to First Move. Great to have you with us this Wednesday as we talk taxation time for global corporations, vaccination timetables in the United States and EU, and hopes from a summer relaxation time. Yes, please. We have the CEO of Bookings Holdings, the parent company of Priceline and Booking.com, joining us to discuss what they're seeing and whether vaccine passports will be an improvement or perhaps an impediment. And speaking of travel, U.S. majors are going nowhere fast. Once again, a breather after record gains. But there's more upside potential if J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon proves right. He's arguing that the U.S. economy could see continued growth into 2023 and therefore providing support for higher valuations, even as he warns of the risks of, quote, inept public policy and broad government dysfunction. Short term, though, he credits spending and vaccine proliferation. And there's good news there for the United States, too. President Biden widening vaccine eligibility to everyone over 16 years old from April 19th. In the meantime, EU officials also optimistic that they will have enough supplies for all EU citizens by the end of June. Now, that would be a huge turnaround and welcome news, of course, to nations like France and Italy currently in lockdowns, with Germany still weighing calls for further restrictions. The UK, who's announced reopening plans, sees their stock market as the relative outperformer, as you can see there today as a result this week. In Asia, Japan ticking higher amid reports that Toshiba is eyeing a $20 billion deal to go private. Samsung, meanwhile, dipping despite projecting a healthy Q1 profit rise of more than 40% as it successfully navigates the global chip shortage. Oh boy, it's a busy Wednesday. Let's get right to the drivers. The White House plan to potentially raise corporation taxes has a surprising supporter, perhaps Amazon's outgoing CEO, Jeff Bezos. As I mentioned, Claire Sebastian has more on this. Claire, great to have you with us. The White House, of course, talking about raising rates for the first time in 25 years. Some might say Jeff Bezos can say he'd pay more tax because Amazon doesn't pay the corporation tax rate as it is at 21% already. But set the skeptics aside, what more did he have to say? Yeah, it was a it was a short statement, Julia, and he he basically said now is the right time to invest in infrastructure, and Amazon is supportive of that, and he understands that this will take concessions from both sides, and sort of buried in there in brackets, he said we're supportive of a rise in the corporate tax rate. So that's sort of unexpected, given that Amazon has really been the poster child for a company that that manages to get around the headline corporate tax rate. President Biden has has mentioned them on a number of occasions as a company that does not pay uh, the sort of the full whack of corporate taxes. Uh, So interesting that he came out. He didn't mention, though, what what size of a corporate tax increase he would support. He didn't mention any of the other parts uh, of the Biden plan, which involves closing some loopholes that have allowed 
big tech companies to pay less tax. But but have a look, because you say that the Amazon doesn't pay the, the, full, the full whack. That is absolutely true. Let's have a look at the last couple of years. Last year, they paid 9.4% effective federal income tax rate. Before that, it was 1.2% in 2019. And before that, they didn't pay any tax at all. There was actually a negative tax rate. So the taxes the company pays uh, have been going up, but, but, but still nowhere near uh, the scale of, the, of the, the sort of headline corporate tax rate. So I think the, the cynic could say uh, that, that Amazon can say this because they don't pay anywhere near that, that rate anyway. And of course, look at the timing as well. Amazon is facing a union drive in Alabama that if successful could spread. They're facing the prospect of tighter regulation. You could argue that this is a way for them to generate goodwill at a time when people are really looking to big companies to, to be part of the solution here when it comes to the recovery from COVID-19. Oh, we're talking about a positive headline to uh, perhaps offset some of the more negative headlines that they've seen in recent days. Timing, as they say, is everything, Claire. And of course, to your point, they are paying a lot more tax perhaps in 2020 than they paid in the past. But oh, heck, they had a, a massive bump in pre-tax yeah. profits or income in 2020, thanks to the pandemic. And it's interesting, um, Mark Benioff, Salesforce, said he sort of broadly supports the idea of corporations paying higher tax rates. But you've got to look at it in the context of the tax rates being paid by corporations all around the world. Because if you put American companies at a disadvantage perhaps suppress innovation. That's not the answer either. And it's kind of, kind of quite interesting in light of what Janet Yellen's been proposing in terms of broader tax rates and the IMF today proposing a solidarity tax on pandemic winners too. The movement, the momentum is here. Yeah, accelerated by the pandemic, Julia, which as we have discussed has, has magnified inequality. So mm. I think look, Janet Yellen is getting broad support. European governments, Germany, France, have come out and said they, they would support this. The OECD has been working on something similar, a global minimum corporate tax for years, but has just never managed to, to actually implement it. This would basically allow companies to set their own corporate tax rate, but they would be allowed to top up the taxes uh, on companies who pay a lower tax somewhere else. So it would reduce the incentive to do that, reduce the sort of offshoring effect that, that we've seen that the US in particular has been really uh, vocal against because of the impact it's had on the on the national on the national tax base. So a lot of momentum there. The, 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 the solidarity tax, an interesting one, that would allow countries to, to temporarily, the IMF is calling for this, to temporarily raise taxes on higher earners and companies who have profited from the pandemic. No one more so perhaps than the likes of Amazon. I reached out to them this morning for a comment on that, have not heard back yet, but it'd be interesting to see how they how they approach that, another temporary tax burden on them. Yes, keep chasing. Claire Sebastian, thank you for your wisdom on this. All right, let's move on. Oxford University pausing a trial of the AstraZeneca COVID-19 vaccine in children. The university says it's waiting for results of a UK review into possible links to blood clots. Meanwhile, the European regulator releases updated findings on the vaccine in an hour's time. Melissa Bell joins me now and has been looking at this. This is the European Medicines Regulator. Uh, Melissa, you and I spoke about this before. Their initial assessment on this vaccine was, look, the benefits outweigh the costs. Are we expecting anything different today? Well, this time we should get, Julia, compared to what you mentioned then, which was back in March. You'll remember amid this crisis where country after country had paused uh, the rollout of the AstraZeneca vaccine, the European Medicines Agency had announced in a press conference also uh, that, in fact, as you say, uh, it was better to carry on giving it. The risks were outweighed by the benefits. This time we're going to get the actual conclusion of their investigation into these uh, cases of blood clots in some patients who'd been inoculated with the AstraZeneca vaccine uh, to give an idea of what they think uh, should now happen, whether or not there is actually 
a link. Uh, that is what we're expecting to hear. After that, European ministers, health ministers, will meet to discuss what they should then be doing once that verdict is given in terms of the AstraZeneca vaccine. But uh, already what we're seeing, uh, Julia, is countries looking really elsewhere. The state of Bavaria in Germany announcing today that it will buy 2.5 million doses of the Sputnik vaccine uh, should it be approved by the European Medicines Agency. It's currently being considered, and this by the month of July. So uh, this question of uh, supply very much being looked at by European countries. The European Commission believes that 360 million doses overall uh, in terms of the contracts already signed should be arriving in the second quarter. And what they hope is that that should help. Wow. I mean, let's talk about this as well, because obviously the, the, the talk in Europe has been how on a relative basis far behind they are nations like the United States, the countries that are doing well, European nations have gone elsewhere to the likes of the Russian and in certain cases, um, the Chinese. How are they going to achieve this? How are they going to manage to assign and have supplies available by June, as they've said, for every EU nation, every citizen, should they want them? Well, for a start, you're seeing these increasingly imaginative attempts to try and get people vaccinated here in France. The Stade de France has been turned, uh, Julia, this week into an entire vaccination centre. 10,000 injections given out every week. In Venice, they have a Vaporetto trying to get to older people who might be more isolated. Uh, so they're trying uh, to get beyond those failed targets for the EU so far. What they had hoped is that in the EU, 80% of frontline workers and elderly people would now be vaccinated by the end of March. Only five countries out of 27 have managed that. So that gives you an idea of how far behind they are behind their own targets, Julia. But now, of course, clearly just a matter of supplies and getting enough doses into enough European countries uh, that these vaccination programs should get up and off the ground, especially uh, given the dangers of these new variants and the increased restrictions that we're tending to see across Europe, Julia. Yeah, Isabel, thank you so much for that. And we wait for that press conference at 10 a.m. Eastern time today. To South Korea now, Samsung forecasting a big jump in first quarter profit despite chip supply issues. The company says it's likely made around $8.3 billion in the quarter, largely driven by strong global sales of smartphones. That's a 44% jump from a year ago. Paul Monica joins us with more. Paul, that is a whopping great jump and ties to the demand that we've seen throughout the pandemic. What more did they have to say? Yeah, Samsung didn't really say all that much, Julia, because this is a preliminary report. They don't give detailed guidance about each individual business unit. But overall revenue, they said, up more than 15%. And as you pointed out, there have been notable supply chain issues regarding Samsung's chip business, not just because of the weather disruptions in Austin, Texas, with the unusually cold weather there, but a global uh, you know, supply problem for chips writ large. So I think a lot of analysts are expecting that due to the chip issues, Samsung probably had a great quarter with its new smartphones, the S21 launch, and also TVs, appliances, other electronics. This is good news for Samsung and probably a reflection of the healthy rebound in consumer spending around the globe as COVID-19 hopefully continues to fade away as a big economic concern. It's fascinating, isn't it? Counterpoint Research believes that they've now got around 23% in terms of market share during this quarter with cheaper than usual pricing for its, um, its premium devices. If you compare to the prior quarter, they had about 16%, but the challenge there was Apple, of course, and the announcing and the release of uh, iPhone 12. 
it's fascinating, too, in light of what LG announced this week and said, look, we're getting out of the smartphone game. Just in the United States alone, Apple and Samsung have over 80 percent market share. It's a it's a two horse race and no one else really can compete. No, not at all. It is a duopoly. Samsung is the de facto standard for Android devices, obviously. And then you have Apple with its own system, iOS. LG, though, you note that, Julia, that they're pulling out of the global smartphone race. It's interesting because their earnings yesterday were also very strong. And it was because of things like appliances and TVs as well. So I think a lot of electronics companies recognize that there's not much money to be made in smartphones right now unless you're named Apple or Samsung, but you can make flat screen TVs and refrigerators and still uh, make a lot of coin from doing that. You certainly can. And if that's going to be your focus going forward, it's good to have good results there already. Paula Monica, thank you so much for that. All right, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. Both Iran and the United States are calling the first day of talks to resurrect a treaty on Iran's nuclear program, quote, constructive. While powers are in Vienna looking to rescue the 2015 deal that President, former President Donald Trump abandoned several years ago, Iran and the U.S. are speaking through intermediaries. Negotiations resume on Friday. CNN's Fred Preitgen is live in Vienna for us. Fred, great to have you on the show. I think there's no real sense that anything concrete can happen before the Iranian elections on June the 18th, but perhaps a period of quiet here in terms of tensions and relations ahead of that. Yeah, and, and I think that uh, it's absolutely right to say that the first day certainly seems to have been uh, quite constructive. It's the Iranians saying that, it's the U.S. that's saying that, it's also the EU that's really leading the intermediary effort to try and bring these two sides together. So it's all those sides who are saying that the first day was constructive, and at least, at the very least, they're moving forward. However, there are certainly still some obstacles. The U.S. came out yesterday and said, look, there's not going to be any unilateral sanctions relief, any unilateral action on the part of the U.S. to try and entice Iran to get back into full compliance. Uh, with the Iran nuclear agreement. But the Iranians, for their part, are also saying, look, they want full sanctions relief immediately from the United States in order for the U.S. to get back into the deal. In fact, the Iranian chief negotiator, who's also the country's deputy prime minister, Abbas Arakchi, he came out and he said he believed that Iran was the only reason why the deal is still alive in the first place. Let's listen in. We are quite serious. Nobody can question Iran's goodwill. The JCPOA is alive because of Iran, and we have paid a heavy price for that. Our people have suffered from the sanctions imposed by the United States. And now, if they want to revive JCPOA, if they want to come back to the JCPOA, they should lift all sanctions uh, at once. Of course, those sanctions that he's talking about is that maximum pressure campaign that we've seen from the Trump administration over the past couple of uh, years. And really, the way that the negotiators, those intermediaries, are approaching this is they're trying to compartmentalize all of this. They've founded two main working groups, one that deals with sanctions, first and foremost dealing with the United States, asking them, what sanctions would you be willing to drop in which period of time? What do you expect from the Iranians in return? And then the other working group is dealing with the Iranians on nuclear issues, how to get back into compliance, especially with some of the uranium that they've been enriching and some of the research that the Iranians have been doing as well. In an ideal world, Julia, those two positions would come to a conclusion and then be merged, and then everything would happen simultaneously. The U.S. would get back into the deal, Iran would get back into compliance. But of course, we are still pretty far away from that point. It is still very early stages, but at very least, both sides have said they want the deal to survive, Julia. 
Yes, that's the hope, and we keep our fingers crossed. Fred, are you dealing with sideways snow there? Yes, I am. Yes, I am. I'm, I'm thinking of getting my sled if, if this continues. <laughs> wow, snow in April. Fantastic. <laughs> well handled. Fred Black in there in Vienna. Thank you. All right, let's move on. More law enforcement professionals testified Tuesday in the trial of Derek Chauvin, the former Minneapolis police officer charged with murder in the death of George Floyd. The use of force expert from the Minneapolis police testified that Chauvin's kneeling on Floyd's neck is not a restraint tactic used in training. Testimony is set to resume in the next hour. New video shows the dramatic rescue of crew members aboard a Dutch cargo ship. The ship lost power during a storm in the North Sea, putting it in danger of capsizing and also posing a potential environmental hazard. We're told all 12 people on board were rescued safely. All right, so to come here on First Move, travel trends, business trips are out, staycations are in and prices are up. The CEO of Booking Holdings on post-pandemic travel and the UAE goes nuclear, firing up the Arab world's first nuclear power station. That's all coming up. Stay with First Move. Welcome back to First Move, where U.S. majors are hovering near records. Deutsche Bank, though, adding a note of caution here, projecting a market pullback of as much as 10% near term and seeing today's booming economy leveling off by the fall. JP Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon, while bullish on the U.S. economy overall, also cautious over the longer term. In his more than 60-page letter to investors, Dimon warns on the U.S. debt burden and how rising inflation might impact Federal Reserve policy. He notes that there is, quote, some froth and speculation in the market, as we saw recently with the collapse of Arkegos Capital. Dimon's big worry is what happens in the next big downturn. What can the Fed and Congress possibly do for Encores? An important question. Joining us now, Scott Miner, the co-founder and global chief investment officer at Guggenheim Partners. Scott, always great to have you on the show. Warnings there about froth in the market coming at the same time as the IMF is upgrading U.S. growth forecasts and the data, much of the data coming in strong. What's your assessment of where we are for the U.S. economy? Well, for the U.S. economy, I think, Julia, things are actually stronger than the IMF is expecting. Mm. Uh, I, I would imagine that growth this year will be somewhere between 8 and 10 percent, which would be uh, the highest growth that the U.S. has experienced since 1983 after we came out of the Reagan recession. So uh, I'm pretty bullish on the economy, and uh, I do see pockets of risk overseas in the emerging markets and in Europe. But uh, Hopefully, the uh, U.S. economy at that kind of strength will be a locomotive and pull the entire world with it. We've still got 8 million jobs to recapture, more than 8 million in the United States. We had the president of the St. Louis Fed on last week, and he said we're still in crisis mode. Does a growth forecast of between 8 and 10 percent for 2020 crisis mode in terms of, of the jobs market justify the Federal Reserve where they are in terms of policy today? at the end of the year? Well, I think that, you know, uh, the Fed at the zero bound right now is probably the appropriate policy setting. The more disturbing uh, issue here, Julia, is uh, the forward guidance. Uh, the Fed has pretty much married itself to a zero interest rate uh, in short-term rates through 2023. Uh, of course, the market uh, thinks that because the Fed has been so aggressive uh, with its forward guidance that if inflation starts to take off, uh, that uh, bonds are going to be vulnerable 
to a hard sell-off, meaning a, 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 a significant rise in long-term rates. And we, we don't have stocks like tech stocks priced at levels that can sustain uh, meaningfully higher long-term interest rates. So when does the marriage suffer a breakup, if not a divorce? <laughs> well, I'm, I actually uh, have a, a, <clears throat> a bit of a different view than most people. And that is uh, the forward data that we see is telling us that actually inflation is going to be moderating uh, and the rate of inflation will probably be falling in the second half of the year. This pricing, which the uh, market has in the bond market, anticipates a surge in inflation over the course of the next three years. And if that uh, expectation starts to be disappointed, uh, then we could actually see interest rates come down quite a bit, uh, which could sustain uh, the, the bull market in stocks for a number of years. Uh, of course, the uh, what is the catalyst for that? And uh, in the near term, uh, very well could be a, another experience like we've had in the hedge fund world or the private family office world in the last few weeks, uh, whether it was uh, with Huang or with uh, Eastill. Um, so I think, uh, um, you know, we're, we're uh, or Green Seal, I'm sorry, that we, uh, <clears throat> that, you know, we, there could be another bolt out of the blue and uh, could change people's risk assessment and have them uh, decide that it's maybe better to reduce their stock risk in coming months and, and bonds might be a safe haven. And I think that is a catalyst that uh, uh, could very well lead to the scenario that I'm thinking of probability of that, Scott? Because the last time you were on, we were talking about GameStop and what that represented in terms of perhaps the degree of excess risk sentiment. Now, to your point too, another event that the market coped with, but it's a warning sign. Yes, I think so. I mean, look, um, there's a famous uh, statement by Baron von Rothschild. When asked the secret of his great wealth, he said, I sold early. Uh, you know, even though I think right now for the next month or so, there's a lot of tailwinds, uh, you know, Julia, I, I wouldn't be surprised if we had a sudden setback. So, uh, you know, equity investors have really had a great 12 month performance since uh, March of 2020. You know, it might be time to take some chips off the table and, and see if there's a better entry point later in the year. Is that what you're telling investors today? Uh, yes, and we've actually adjusted for that. Uh, we were uh, at max risk, uh, meaning you know all the all the things that we thought would go up in price, like stocks, high yield bonds, uh, corporate bonds, uh, ever since March the twenty third of last year. And uh, it was just in the last uh, week or so that we actually started uh, to reduce the risk for the first time uh, since the height of the pandemic crisis. So now here's a question, because you and I have discussed in the past about crypto and you made the comment about, and I'll be specific about Bitcoin, the relative scarcity valuation compared to gold. And it was an eye opener. It was a, a valuation of four hundred thousand um, dollars, which caught the attention of the crypto community, as I'm sure our viewers can imagine. In a scenario where we do see some kind of pullback and risk event driven or not, what happens, do you think, to that space, given the enthusiasm well, you know, that we see today? Sure. I mean, you know, it's interesting, Julia, the, when I made the $400,000 statement, uh, you know, I'm looking at it over a period of, of, of 10 to 20 years. 
of course, the market uh, uh, took off. Uh, you know, I first started look. I started first started looking at buying crypto at ten thousand or at the Bitcoin at ten thousand. Uh, today, we're I don't know where we are anymore. Uh, it's become so rich so fast. Maybe around fifty thousand. Um, but uh, you know, the, it clearly has gotten caught up in the speculative bubble that GameStop got into, uh, and another number of these other stocks, and so. Uh, you know, I think uh, when we get a risk off moment, uh, we could be seeing um, Bitcoin pull back to somewhere between twenty and thirty thousand dollars. But I think for long term investors, that'll be a great entry point. Yeah. But the point here is, I guess it's not diversification, at least short term diversification, even if you are a buy and hold and hold for many years type of investor. Well, you had a pretty good return from ten thousand. I was about to say so. four hundred thousand was leapt on because it was parabolic in terms of rise. <laughs> Anything's possible. Well, that's a great. <laughs> it's a great statement because parabolic markets uh, can't aren't sustainable, and that, that's one of the reasons why I think uh, Bitcoin has gotten a little bit ahead of itself in its long term trend. But uh, yeah, we've got a lot of markets that are going parabolic, so uh, yeah. you know. That's Hard to get short, though. A dangerous game. Yeah. Scott, great to get your insight and your wisdom this morning. Thank you. Scott Miner, the Global Chief Investment Officer at Guggenheim Partners there. We'll speak soon. The market opens next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. And U.S. stock markets are up and running this Wednesday. We're virtually unchanged in early trade. As you can see, a continuation of the tight trading ranges that we saw in play yesterday. Crew stocks bucking the trend, opening higher. Reports say the U.S. government under intense industry pressure could allow ships to sail again as soon as July of this year. Under some conditions, Carnival threatening to pull its ships from U.S. ports if the government doesn't shift policy soon. Reopenings, meanwhile, gathering steam elsewhere. California set to lift most COVID restrictions by mid-June if virus cases don't flare. And U.S. job openings now at two-year highs, with recharged restaurants reportedly desperate to find help. The vaccine rollout, crucial for the travel industry. 71% of Americans say the initial success makes them feel optimistic about traveling this year. It's according to a booking holding survey. But some signs of caution remain. 70% of Americans say they prefer travel close to home for the foreseeable future, with the majority opting for lots of shorter breaks over one long one. Giving us perspective uh, now is Glenn Fogel. He's the CEO and president of Booking Holdings. Great to have you on the show, Glenn. Your latest travel survey shows greater optimism among travellers as we see um, more vaccine delivery. But is that translating to actual bookings? What can you tell us? Well, thanks for having me, Julia. And there's definitely a correlation. As the vaccines have been rolled out, the interest in travels increased. And we're definitely beginning to see an increase in people searching, looking for where they want to go in the summer. And that's why we've come out with an incentive to really get people over the line, start booking. We know how much the industry needs a recovery. So we're offering all Americans a $50 post-stay credit to go to our booking.com app find a place to stay, book it, and we'll give you $50 after you stay to get you going the second time because we don't want it just to be one and done. We want to have a sustainable momentum in this industry. And you are seeing shorter trips being booked 
and more local than those in perhaps other states or international, which is still a struggle? Yeah, international is definitely a struggle. A lot of places will not let you travel for a holiday to another country. We see some incredible statistics looking back a year. When the lockdowns finally got lifted last spring in many parts of the world, you could see people beginning to book travel, but it was very, very close to home, very short car travel distances. But as things have gotten better and safer, we see the area, the average distance that someone will go for a trip extending, extending farther and farther afield. And it's almost, I can almost correlate between the safety feeling people are getting and the further they're willing to go. Wow. So to your point, again, the greater the proliferation of vaccines, wherever it is in the world, the greater confidence people have to go further away from home. That's exactly what it is. And that's what we know is really necessary to get the whole travel industry worldwide back on its feet. So much of the money is made in international travel. So until until we get those vaccines everywhere, the international travel is going to be greatly repressed. Vaccine passport technology, an improvement or a potential impediment, Glenn? What's your take? No, I am absolutely in favor of anything that will help encourage people to go travel safely internationally and many countries are thinking well we don't want anybody to come we only want people who are safe meaning that they don't have the virus and sure you can get a test three days before you're going to travel and that's somewhat helpful but it's also it'd be a lot easier if i could show up and say hey i'm a safe traveler i've gotten my vaccines and have a country say sure come on in so it's a real great improvement and i know there's some concern about privacy there's some concern about fairness and all that, but the industry, the travel industry needs travel. And what we need to do is get people going. If they're safe to travel, let them travel, I say. If technology can help make it easier for us to find out who is safe, that's fine. Do you think uh, quarantine restrictions, and in certain cases, perhaps excessive quarantine restrictions in some quarters, is still the greater impediment here to travel than confidence and, and the fear of perhaps catching COVID? Well, the whole idea of these quarantines is definitely a problem because who's going to go on a trip if you have to spend two weeks in a hotel first? One person is going to do that if you're moving to a place permanently. So certainly the idea of getting a vaccine, proving that you're safe, no need for a quarantine, that's really helpful. And I know that Prime Minister Johnson, for example, in the UK talking about not needing quarantines for people approval to be safe when they open up international travel next month, hopefully. Lots of areas where we don't need quarantines for somebody who proves that they're not going to be carrying the virus. Yeah. The other thing I wanted to ask you, obviously, you were starting to see uh, tourism pick up and people dipping the toe with bookings there. What about business travel? I I read recently, it was a software provider, Trondent, that said 12% of air travel is business travel, but it makes up 75% of the uh, profits of the industry. I mean, it's a critical piece of financing uh, the airline industry in particular. Glenn, what are you seeing in terms of business travel pick up? Well, Julie, you're so right. This is such an interesting thing and unfortunate for the airline uh, people and the hotels in the high end. It's going to be a big problem because so many, so much of the profits were made, they say, at the front of the bus, of course, the front of the plane. Those fares in business class and those fares for first class uh, tickets, those are very, very rich. And they provide a lot of profits. Now people in business are saying, wait a minute, do I need my person to go on a trip for you know all day traveling somewhere for a two hour meeting? 
look, you and I, we're doing this great conversation right now using video technology. A lot of business people are saying, we don't need to spend so much money on business travel. And that's going to hurt the uh, travel industry somewhat. And the airlines and the high-end hotels are going to have to make some changes. And that's a permanent shift, Glenn, do you think, to some degree? Well, I think, yeah, I think a permanent, there's a permanent shift and people are not going to spend as much money on business travel as they did in the past. Mm. So as a share of total travel, I think business travel will be lower than it was in the past. That being said, the GDPs are continuing to expand. We, we love the fact that the economies are growing. So at some time, there'll be more business travel in total, but there'll still be a smaller share than the overall total travel. Sort of argues ticket prices have to rise to compensate. Hmm. Glenn, great to have you on. Thank you for your wisdom. Glenn Fogel, the CEO and president of Booking Holdings. All right, let's move on. Thank you. Could you be going on your next holiday in an autonomous plane? Now, that's a question. Look closely and you won't see a pilot in this one. It might just be a test flight, but a tech startup is working on making this experiment a real-life scenario. The CEO of Reliable Robots, next. Welcome back to First Move. Would you get on a plane that has no pilot? Well, that's the future envisioned by the autonomous aircraft startup Reliable Robotics. It's developing technology that could eventually see planes fly with no one in the cockpit. The company has two experimental aircraft that it wants to use to carry cargo in remote areas first. According to management consulting firm Oliver Wyman, replacing single pilot operations with autonomous planes could save airlines as much as $60 billion a year. Robert Rose is the CEO of Reliable Robotics, and he joins us now. That's a lucrative opportunity for the airlines, Robert. The premise of the company is aircraft should be able to fly themselves, and that's what you're working on. That's correct. Yeah, we started Reliable Robotics almost four years ago. Uh, The idea is to create a new type of airline, an airline where instead of having pilots in the cockpit, you have pilots in control centers. Uh, One of the inspirations as well is just personally, uh, I've had family that is uh, located in parts of Oregon that are difficult to reach with commercial air travel. And with autonomous aircraft, we can move people from local municipal airports directly to other places in the country that they want to go. Because the network today, um, the way we've constructed it with pilots in the planes, it's largely hub and spoke. Uh, We only use about 100 or so airports today in the commercial uh, Uh, airspace for in the United States, but we have over 5,000 airports available for public use. And with autonomy, we can move people directly from where they are to the airports nearest to where they want to go. I mean, you're still in the experimental phase, so we should be clear that you have pilots on board, but you have also demonstrated unmanned operations across populated areas in the United States. Just talk us through that. So right after we started the company, we set out to prove to ourselves uh, that we could actually automate a plane end-to-end, gate-to-gate, meaning from parking spot to parking spot. Aircraft today um, are largely um, only automated for the in-route phases of flight and occasionally landing if you have the right infrastructure available at the airport. Uh, But nobody has yet automated uh, taxi operations as well as takeoff. Uh, So far, we've demonstrated fully unmanned operation on a small passenger aircraft, the Cessna 172. And then we have since also demonstrated fully automated operation of a Cessna 208 caravan. We actually remotely operated that 
from our control center in Mountain View about 50 miles away. I mean, it's quite incredible. Mountain View, California, I should say. Yeah, I mean, most people will be looking at this and saying, um, you know, a plane flying itself, you would turn that around and say, look, it's a complex task as it is. You know, is it better to try and eliminate human error? How much of this is down to challenging the technology that you're producing and dealing with emergency situations, making sure that an autonomous plane can deal with any kind of an emergency, because that requires data collection. That is exactly the key. Um, automation systems today that we, we have in aircraft uh, largely rely on the human being there present to respond uh, in the event of something going wrong. Uh, a key reason uh, we're not yet able to move the, uh, the pilot into a control center is you need to break down all of these potential issues that could cause problems methodically and develop mitigations that you can place on board the aircraft. I should stay, say, though, that uh, there's, there's always going to be um, uh, cases where you're going to want a human being involved in the resolution of an issue. And that's, that's a key reason why we have pilots stationed in our control centers. Uh, an example would, here would be um, in an emergency condition where you need to execute an emergency landing, uh, that type of operation is going to be tightly coordinated with air traffic control because ATC or um, folks that are in the airport environment may have knowledge of what's going on at the airport, and which runway may be acceptable to execute an emergency landing. And uh, for me personally, I, I would want someone involved in, in making that decision. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense to me. I think everybody would. You just you want somebody in control here who has a stake in the game, uh, quite frankly, in an emergency situation. Um, how long before we could see these used, even just to transport cargo? And then you can tell me how long perhaps it takes to transport passengers. Well, cargo is the key. You hit on it. So that's why we're focusing on, on cargo first. Uh, because um, it's going to be much more straightforward to bring this technology to market, especially on smaller cargo planes like the Cessna Caravan. Um, when we started the company, we uh, were joking that it would probably be five years from the time we started to when we would actually be able to operate for revenue. I think we're going to be close. I think it's going to be a little over that. So uh, I think we still have a few years before we're going to be able to operate for revenue with cargo. Uh, passenger travel, I'm optimistic that we'll start to see autonomous planes by the end of the decade. Do you think the timetable has shifted in light of the regulators, the FAA, dealing with what happened with Boeing and the reputational hit I think they took as a result of that? And I think just for ordinary people, this idea that a pilot was struggling with a, a, a system, a computer system, and, and failed in those tragic cases. Do you think the FAA is going to be perhaps more reticent to approve things like this, technology like this, and I'm including, you know, autonomous helicopters, and we've had a lot of this on the show when we've talked about it, simply because of, of what happened there. They, they can't make a mistake. Well, it's these incidents have definitely caused the FAA to step back, at least that's what we've seen at our working level. Um, we have, however, seen uh, in our interactions with the FAA, uh, there is a strong desire to to bring about more automated systems uh, because mm -hmm. every time you you automate more and more of an aircraft, um, operations tend to get safer. Uh, the FAA, that, uh, from our experience, has uh, wanted to see a great deal of innovation in this space. But as you hit on it here, uh, the key is doing this in a manner that uh, is is safe and and methodical. 
Um, I think that's one of the reasons this, this types of process takes time. And that's what we're working through now with the FAA. Yeah, all about the data, to your point, and making this safer. And for public sentiment, I think, too. <laughs> Robert, great to have you on. Uh, come back and talk to us soon, please, and uh, keep us updated on your progress. Robert Rose there, the CEO Thank of you. Reliable Robotics. Great to chat. All right, coming up, an oil-rich country in the Middle East, planning on a low-emission future, the first and only nuclear power plant in the region. Up next. UAE, a nation that floats on oil, starting commercial operations of its nuclear power plant, sending cleaner energy into the homes and businesses of the nation. Our John Defterius got exclusive access to the nuclear power plant. A graphic rendering depicting Abu Dhabi by drone at night. The image captures the scale of energy needed to power the capital. What's unique here is that the UAE is the first Arab country to generate light from its own nuclear power. In this uh, building, we have the single biggest generator in the Middle East. Mohammed Al-Hamadi has been involved since day one, taking a working model seen here to the launch of commercial operations. Now we are commercially connected to the grid and we are making revenue and also dispatching clean, reliable, safe, secure electricity to the grid. And these lights, as you see right now, uh, has also some... Uh, part of that nuclear power plant. It's all generated here at the Baraka nuclear facility, about 300 kilometers southwest from Abu Dhabi, near the borders of Saudi Arabia and Qatar. This facility has four reactors. Number one is now fully operational. Number two is loaded with fuel, and three and four will come online over the next few years. When it's all said and done, Baraka will provide about 25% of the nation's electricity. Four units of nuclear power plants will avoid roughly around 21 million tons of CO2 emissions on an annual basis. That's to put it in perspective for, for the audience, that's around 3.2 million cars off the road. The UAE took a big leap into this arena, setting the policy framework back in 2008 and spending $24 billion to develop the sector. More than 3,000 workers are on site. 60% are UAE nationals, like Elam al Noemi, who took her degree five years ago and nuclear engineering. It's uh, unique, it's new to the UAE, and I want it to be part of this new uh, project that is significant. When I went to university, this plan didn't exist. So once I graduated, uh, this job offered me a big exposure in all aspects of environment. This is an exclusive look inside the turbine building in the protected area. I was here in 2017. And it was silent because it was not operational. That clearly has changed. And I can feel the heat with the steam running right into that turbine behind me. The temperature rose to 47 degrees centigrade or 116 degrees Fahrenheit as the facility crossed the threshold into commercial operations. Most people think of the UAE as an oil and gas producer, heavy on hydrocarbons. Does this change the narrative coming online commercially? I would totally agree with you. And the key point here is that UAE is diversifying its, its economy and diversifying its resources of energy. Electrification will be one of the key pillars for decarbonization and also will be a key pillar for the economic growth of the, of the world. As the demand for data and artificial intelligence grows, so too will electrification and the need to meet that growth 
with pure fossil fuels driven by splitting the atom. John Defterius, CNN, Abu Dhabi. John Defterius, there. My teeth are back in. And that's it for the show. If you missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You can search for at CNN. In the meantime, we'll be back tomorrow. Stay safe. Connect the world with Becky Anderson. Up next. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.